0: Navigating the Storm, Episode 9. Have fun with it. For anyone who's new here, hi. I'm Anna Knight. I'm a personal development coach focused on helping women and non-binary people to survive life storms and come out on the other side stronger than ever before. On this podcast, I chat to people about their real lives their stories, and the advice they have for people walking the path behind them. My guests aren't necessarily famous, although Jonathan Van Ness is always welcome. They're people with something important to share. Today, I'm talking to our producer Mel for the second time. The first time Mel was on the show, we talked a lot about our joint story together, so I've invited Mel back to share some insights about creativity, imposter syndrome, and the importance of play. Mel has a gift for the light-hearted and definitely brings that over important the storm. But today we're covering the lighter stuff and a more serious side. We'll be talking about mental health and how that little inner critic voice can get in our own way sometimes. Thanks for coming back onto this side of the microphone.
1: Hello, I mean, I'm usually here anyway, but <laughs> just on
0: the other side. So, for those of you who don't know, Mel is our producer and does all the AV stuff for Animal Night Coaching. But Mel, if you could tell us a little bit about what you do with the rest of your time,
1: well, I am a photographer. I work with both digital and analogue photography. And what is it about photography you love so much? I think it's like, someone phrased it like photography is like problem solving. Okay. So it's like finding all the different ways to get what you want. Like particularly studio work, it's like, okay, well, I'll have the light here And that'll make the shadows here. But if I want to get rid of that shadow, then I need to have a reflector at this side. And, like, it's a lot of thinking about stuff. And not all photography is like that. Like, street photography is very
0: different. So you enjoy the problem-solving
1: aspect of photography? Yeah, and I think... It's creating something with something that's already there. Mm -hmm. Like a painter can paint an incredibly lifelike painting that's almost realistic, but it could be of something completely made up. Mm -hmm. Whereas like my paint is light.
0: And that leads into something interesting that we've talked quite a lot about recently in terms of imposter syndrome and how good a judge we are of our own skill sets. I wonder if you could share your thoughts with us.
1: There's a video by one of the photography YouTubers where he talks about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially the skill of knowing how good you are at something directly correlates with how skilled you are at that thing. Mm-hmm. so if you're at the start and you're starting your skills you will have the skill to understand where you are on the skill level
2: mm-hmm.
1: so essentially at the start when you're just learning you think you're better than you are mm-hmm. like we've all had that thing where we started doing something like oh I'm actually good at this.
0: Yeah, I think for me, it was um, the first time I knitted a scarf and at the end it lived by itself. And I was like, oh, check me out, master knitter. The next thing I embarked upon was a jumper. And that was a foolish mistake. Because like you say, I'd gone, well, I made it. It's not too lumpy. It doesn't unravel. Like I've cracked knitting. Who says it's that complicated? And then had to increase and decrease and things like that. And I was just like, yeah, I don't understand what I'm doing at all
1: yeah and I think especially when you're learning something so I learned photography in a school setting like my reference points for how good people at photography were were the people who I was doing photography with who were just starting out like I was mm-hmm. so you can get the, um, I'm at the same level or slightly better than these people but you don't
0: have the comprehension of the rest of the world <laughs> yeah you don't have that wider context so that's the very start of the Dunning Kruger effect that yeah. you think you're better than you are because you don't have the skill of understanding what makes you good yeah. at the start. What happens next? So that's when you start
1: realising your actual skill level is still going up. Like if you continually do something, you still will always get better. You'll always be better than the last thing you did. But as that skill level grows, you can then start understanding or like, yeah, I'm better than these people, but look at these people and how far do I have to go to get to this level? So on the graph, like skill is like a perfect diagonal line. So you start at the bottom and your skill level just steadily grows as you go along. Mm -hmm. Whereas your understanding of your skill level, it goes up very sharply and then takes a huge dip. And then in the studies, they never found, like, people's perception
0: of their skill level never got back up to their actual skill level. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's something that we might call imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is one of those things that gets talked about quite a lot, like you see articles about it on the internet, or it's in psychology's magazine. But actually, the research that that imposter syndrome label is based on is actually really historic. And it was reframed to me the other day, which I found really helpful, as when you call something a syndrome, it feels quite fixed and quite medicalised and quite like it's a facet of who you are. Whereas if you change that narrative slightly and have it as imposter feelings, so feelings of doubting yourself, feelings that you're an imposter...
1: Yeah, because even if you have imposter syndrome, it's not a fixed, you always feel like this. Like, because I have, I have moments where I turn to you, I'm like, I'm good at photography, aren't I? And then the next minute I could be like, no, no, I'm awful. Like, it's not a consistent level of mm-hmm. imposterism.
0: Yeah. So- But I think what we do when we call something a syndrome, and I think not just for imposter syndrome, but for things like PTSD has that disorder, generalized anxiety has that disorder label on it, it feels big and inconquerable. Whereas in the moment, like you were saying, if you can notice, oh, I'm feeling imposter feelings or I'm feeling anxious feelings, it almost takes some of the emotional weight of that off and lets you recognize and then adjust your plan to make things better. So how do imposter feelings show up for you as a creative? I
1: mean, I've been doing photography since I was
0: 14, so it's more
1: than half my life. And yet I still don't think I'm very good at it. Like I see people on the internet posting amazing photos and I'm like, well, I'm not up to that. And I think I'm getting slightly better at recognising when I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. But I haven't sort of worked out the most effective way to battle them feelings. Mm
0: -hmm. And does it impact then on how you approach your photography?
1: Definitely. Because I think I spend a lot of time overthinking things or second-guessing myself. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that thing of like... It's like so we got quite regularly go on drives so I can go take photos, mm-hmm. and it's that thing of sometimes I see something and I think I want to take a photo of that, but I am like, well, it's not going to be a good photo, so we may as well not stop and I may as well not take the photo. It's the anxiety part of my brain going, but what if the world ends? <laughs> like it's just phrased in, what if you shouldn't be a photographer?
0: And what I'm hearing then is that there's this inner critical anxiety voice pointing out all the hypothetical problems, but the real-world effect is missed opportunities that you might not stop to take the shot that you really wanted. Yeah, or... You might not post your work online. Or I might not
1: enter that competition, or... I might not submit my work to magazines or galleries or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It's this weird thing where I'm lucky enough to have found the thing in life that I want to do above everything else. And I'm doing it as my job. Like, I am a photographer. I have my own business. But it sort of comes with that layer of, like, almost guilt. Like, why should I get to have the thing... Some people want to be photographers and end up as cashiers in a supermarket or some people want to be photographers and end up working an office job for the entirety of their lives. Like It's imposter syndrome, but it's also that other level of not only am I an imposter, I'm also occupying a space
0: that somebody who's not an imposter could occupy.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think that is something that I imagine a lot of people listening will be really familiar with, that... I'm not good enough but also I'm taking up room for someone else who just hasn't had what you described as luckiness.
1: Yeah or hasn't had the same opportunity and it's like what if they're a better photographer
0: than I am? Yeah and that's super interesting isn't it because there's two ways of thinking about the world. There's that hierarchy that goes from the best at something to the worst at something and where do I fit on it and that imaginary threshold of once you hit this level, you've earned your place at the table. But then I'm seeing that there's a contrasting viewpoint to that in terms of there's infinite space in the world for photographers, and it's about contributing your unique viewpoint. It comes back to discussions that we've been having over important in in the storm, that inner critical voice, those imposter feelings that part of you that's so bogged down with all the other parts of life, it makes it that we miss opportunities, that we don't do things that we really want to. We're busy being mothers and wives and partners and employees. Yeah. I'm not saying that men
1: don't get imposter syndrome, Mm because I'm sure they do. But I think it's that thing of, like, we get told, like, if they work hard and they make it, then they deserve it. If you work hard at your job and then you get successful, then there, you've done it.
0: Yeah, whereas I think for women there's that idea of you can't have it all. Yeah. And what we're told to prioritise is not necessarily the stuff that gives us that personal satisfaction, that vocational stuff. It's the stuff that's of service to others that gets a lot of airtime when praise is handed out. Yeah, I feel like, okay, little kids. When a guy
1: is kicking a ball around the field, oh, he's next David Beckham. He's uh, the next Wayne Rooney. Like, he's going to be some big, shot, big-name football star. Whereas the girls who are pushing prams around, oh, she's going to be such a good mom. Mm -hmm. It's not saying that that is the case for everyone. I was a tomboy. I was a little girl kicking a ball around a field. But in the other respect, I was told I shouldn't be doing that.
0: Yeah, there was no expectation on you to become the next David Beckham.
1: No. In fact, if anything, grown-ups would sometimes, like, not realising they were doing it, but, like, shamed me for being a tomboy. Like, oh, you should be more girly. There was plenty of times where people had got me Barbies for presents, and I'd be like... Uh, it's not really my thing. Men are encouraged to be the star. Mm-hmm.
0: It's super interesting, isn't it, thinking about the next generations coming through where I think a lot of the the moms that I know out there are almost actively, consciously trying to break these cycles to praise their boy children for the times they're sensitive and praise their girl children for the times they succeed I do wonder whether we're starting to wake up to some of this programming that maybe you and I lived through 30 years ago. Yeah, it's
1: definitely... Like, being told that I shouldn't be a tomboy and I should be girlier, it definitely put me through periods where I, I tried to be girly, but because it's not my thing, like, I'd fail at it, and then I'd feel bad because, like, I wasn't a proper girl. And, um... Yeah, it almost
0: teaches you that you're wrong Mm -hmm. when I'm working with people who have that inner critic voice going on who are wanting to work on their inner critic to release that voice a lot of the thoughts come back to I'm not good I'm bad I'm not a good girl I'm not doing being a woman right and actually it's one of the most transformative parts of Coaching kind of when people are going through that coaching journey, there's a point where they suddenly have this realization of it's not just their small paradigm was putting those pressures on them. It's that the whole cultural thing is based on myths, and actually, when you start unpacking it, you can work out well, this is something that I've been taught to believe is true, but actually, I don't like how it sounds. I'm going to make a different choice. That can actually be super liberating in terms of authenticity and bringing your whole self out in the world. I've just had a realisation.
1: Mm-hmm. So Anna obviously hasn't coached me because I feel like that would be a conflict of interest.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do heavily suggest that you don't ever coach your partner. Yeah, <laughs> like- but
1: I have had coaching from another one of many coaches. Mm-hmm. When coaching was first brought to my attention and you were talking about archetypes, and it's like things like queen and sorceress made me feel uncomfortable because it wasn't the descriptions of the words that you mm-hmm. give with the coaching. It's just the words in themselves. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's something in that that the negative archetype, Mm -hmm.
0: victim, a martyr, gender neutral terms.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah and that's definitely something that I talk to people a lot about is when we're talking about all these kind of archetypes. So for those of you who haven't listened to other episodes or talking about these archetype things, archetypes are words that we hold as societies that we know what they mean. So if I say the word teacher you get an idea of what that person is like. If I say nurse, you get an idea of what that person is like. In coaching, we use some quite specific ones so, queen, mother, lover, warrioress, and sorceress. And they're ways of getting you quickly to a concept. If you say mother, you get an idea of what a mother is. But alongside that, you also bring all your own baggage to the table. So an example of that is if you have a rocky relationship with your own mother, being asked to be in mother power type, it brings up all the stuff about your own mum. And that is sometimes where archetypes can, like you say, they can sometimes actually trigger you into those other feelings. So like you say, if you don't present typically as a member of your gender, if you're gender non-conforming, if you're non-binary... It's about finding the word that is right for you mm. to meet that set of attributes. Because actually, when I talk about being a mother power type, I'm not talking about being a literal mother. I'm talking about being in the, the zone in the way of being that lets you be nurturing and unconditionally loving. Yeah, and supportive.
1: it's like a headspace.
0: Yeah. And just because the word mother might really trigger some stuff in you doesn't mean that you can't access that headspace. I think partly it's about finding the words that resonate for you.
1: But I do wonder if, like you say, archetypes are just words you have in your head that associate you Mm -hmm. with certain things. Is that I wonder if sometimes the words we use are our own internal biases. Like, if you're self-employed, you have to put many different caps on. You have to be an accountant, you have to be a mm-hmm. business manager, you have to be marketing, you have to do this, you have to do that. Like you're, There's lots of different roles that you have to take. And I do wonder if it's that thing of certain roles feel uncomfortable to us because of how we phrase them. Like business and account, it could be in your head as this very stuffy, suit-and-tie, serious... Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where it is in my head, and it's like, Well, I'm not very serious. Yeah, (laughs) like I look good in a tie, but also uncomfortable (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, like I don't fit the stuffy and serious Mm -hmm. thing in my head, so I'm like, I must be bad at that.
0: Yeah, like this is all the stuff that when I'm coaching someone, we really get to dig into because as a coach, I'm not just listening to what someone's saying i'm listening to how they're saying it as well and you do have those moments where you pick out a pattern of speech and you can kind of go actually this is not just about the content of what they're saying but also this is coming through to give you an example of when this actually happened to me as the coachy not the coach we're always encouraged to keep doing the personal development work as coaches And I was talking with my coach, Lisa, about some kind of thing that had happened in my life. I can't remember what the exact scenario is. But Lisa said to me, you keep using words like feeling the weight of it and feeling heavy, is there something going on with your body image at the moment that's bringing that vocabulary out of you? And I did have that moment of going, oh Yeah. Like these issues are actually linking in with how I feel about how I was looking at the time and what I was then doing and that then affected my mindset. And like you say, in some ways, words are words, but in some ways they're actually showing those unconscious things as well. And what I really love about being a coach is that I do get to hold the space for people to not only express the things they know they're thinking about, but also called up that thing of going, you phrased it like this, what's going on here? And it opens so many more aspects up for self-inquiry than if you're doing it yourself, because often when you're doing that internal self-talk, it's hard to step outside the internal monologue. It's hard to step away from the story you're telling yourself to listen to how you're saying it or what themes are coming off. And I guess kind of alongside that, you touched on the last time you were on the show about having long-standing mental health issues. Could you tell us a bit more about your mental health, where it started?
1: Uh, to be honest,
0: I can't really pinpoint
1: the moment my mental health issues started. Like, I remember it being incredibly anxious in primary school, so I've had mental health issues essentially as long as I can remember. So I have a lot of anxiety, i I used to never be able to work out what was the the main bit whether it was anxiety or depression and like as I've got older and have had less periods of depression that have lasted less amount of time I've realized that the depression can go away but the anxiety is always there so I I think my depression that I've had in the past has always been a symptom of my anxiety
0: Mm -hmm. and what's that like for you on a typical day Um, I
1: won't lie. It's not great. It's, like, a lot of people like, oh, like, you worry about stuff that's happening. But I don't think a lot of people realise, I worry about everything. Is this thing I said okay? Is is this message that I'm sending to my friend? It could be literally, like, hi, how you doing? My brain could be like, what if you're bothering them? What if they don't want to talk to you? What if they secretly hate you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like... My brain doesn't tend to shut up.
0: Yeah, so that feeling of one thought spiralling out of control into the next thought and the next thought, it can kind of go to the point where the things you're thinking about are so catastrophic and so far removed from where you started up as well. That's definitely a feature of the anxiety I've experienced. Is that the same for you? Yes.
1: <laughs> like Not all the time, but definitely in my more anxious periods, there have been times where something really, really tiny happening. Like, you miss the bus, and all of a sudden, the world is ending. And it, like, literally, like, it's not that fast, but you can just spiral of, like, I've missed the bus, and that means I'm going to be late for work, and that means I'm going to be told off, and that means I might get fired, and, and then I won't be able to support myself, and what am I going to do without a job? And but I can go from nothing to the worst case scenario in five seconds Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it's not like that all the time that is mainly periods of when my anxiety has been really bad and part of the trick is when i'm feeling good and like when my anxiety isn't so bad it's being able to sort of realize when things are going a little bit crazy and being able to put things in to stop it or realizing that certain thoughts are irrational
0: so to bring it back all together, what I would love to finish on is a little bit about creativity, mindset, and mental health. Because one of the tools that I start quite often with is talking to women about having what we call soft play. So not ball pools and foam shapes, but the idea that you dedicate one hour per week, gifting it, to yourself and you do something that's going to enrich you something that's going to replenish you it's something that is a big part of self-care and reclaiming that self-care I wonder Mel what you think about the place that doing creative activities has in that soft play hour that you're giving yourself
1: I think it's a good thing for everyone to do because people don't take that time for themselves. But I also think it's like when people come to creative stuff, a lot of them think, oh, well, I'm not very good at drawing. I'm not very good at painting, so I shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. It's one of them things. As you're growing up, if you realise you're not very good at it, you stop doing it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it and you can't be creative with it. There doesn't have to be a big final end piece you can just enjoy the process of doing something whether that's painting or drawing or doing some sort of craft or and I think limit creativity to artistic endeavors having a creative eye on things that are not normally perceived as creative tidying up can be creative because creativity isn't just the artistic thing when you're dealing with a coachee like you have to be creative in your thinking. Creativity isn't just limited to painting or drawing or photography or that. It's available to everyone. There's a wonderful saying, creativity isn't a finite resource. Mm-hmm. Like you don't only have a certain amount. Creativity is the more you use it, the more you have. Mm-hmm. So if you spend some time dedicating yourself to creative things, actually you bring more creat- creativity to
0: all parts of your life. Mm. That's a really strong message to take away. Creativity isn't just about literally the creation of artistic things, you can bring it to all aspects of your life. I wonder if it kind of links back to what we were talking about earlier as well in terms of our social training as we're growing up that it feels like definitely in my journey there was a point where I felt like I had to stop using creativity to focus on work and focus on my relationship and focus on all these other things that creativity was frivolous.
1: Well yeah, because I think creativity is seen as something that kids do, something that famous people do, and something that not very successful people do.
0: Mm -hmm. Like the starving artist stereotype.
1: You'll either hit big, or you'll starve, there is no in between.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Like you say, there's a certain point in our lives where it's like playtime's over, serious business now. But actually, the thing that I see time and time again with my clients when they start doing soft play is that actually that one hour a week of doing something fun, doing something replenishing, something creative, even if it's not, like you say, it's not arts and crafts, but it's still creative about how to make it happen or what to do. It's not just about having one nice hour a week. It spreads into the whole of your life. It spreads into your work and your relationships and your parenting and your self-care and your self-worth. Because you're actually playing. And play is something that if you look at the other animals out there, they do play. Like otters don't juggle stones because of the survival thing that comes from juggling stones. They do it because they're playing. They're experiencing the world in a play way. And yet somehow there's this expectation that as adult humans, we're like, nope, no play. And if you do play, you're either going to be mega rich or die in poverty. There's no kind of... Yeah. ...in-between.
1: Yeah. And it's like, why? Like, why should I not have the Lego kit? Why? Like, could anybody give me an actual reason? Because if it's because you're not a child, that's not a proper reason. Mm -hmm. Like why is being immature being silly or being kid like a bad thing when they're the ones that have they have less worries than us they live happier
0: lives more in the moment lives
1: yeah they're not bogged down by responsibility and it's not saying go to a place before you had understanding of what the world was really like it's just why can't we recapture a bit of that
2: mm-hmm.
1: in our adult selves?
0: It would just make everything a bit more bearable. Which kind of leads me back into that moment where I was planning this second interview on the podcast with you. The thing that's happened over the past year that you've done that's really inspired me is with all this crazy going on, you rediscovered the joy in photography and that has helped you through a really crazy year in relatively good shape mental health-wise.
1: Yeah, because it's partially... So, like, at college and school, when I started doing photography, I was encouraged to experiment and have fun with it and try different things and try all the ways. But it's like when you leave school and then try to make it as a job that's when you're expected to be serious. Mm -hmm. So I think I was, at that moment, losing that fun and joy with it because I was seeing every picture as it had to potentially make money. And that sucks the creativity out of it. Mm -hmm. When actually, because I've been actively experimenting and trying different things and putting effort into refining my craft without the pressure of this needs to make money, this needs to do this, this needs to do that. I think I'm making better work than I ever have. Mm -hmm. And
0: more work than I have. Yeah, it just shows the importance of play, of creativity. I think the impact has been huge. So if you had one piece of advice about creativity for the people out there listening, What would you want to say to them?
1: Do it. That thing you've been wanting to try, that bit of craft, that drawing, that painting class, that teapot making class, bookbinding class, that Skillshare course that you've wanted to do, or... Ice skating lessons. Do it. Just, Just do it. Because even if you don't become good at it, even if you don't become a bookbinder or professional teapot maker even if whatever you make at the end it looks awful have fun with it enjoy yourself
0: well who else is feeling inspired to just go do the thing Now, when picking a soft play activity for the first time, I often suggest to my coachees that they go with the thing that your heart craves most or go back to something that they loved in the past that they might have put aside or not found the time for lately. It's also interesting to note that when you're planning a soft play date with yourself, your brain can throw up a lot of resistance. So you might feel selfish for taking time for yourself when there's so much else to do in your world. You might be putting other people's needs above your own You might be putting it way down the priority list next to pairing up all the odd socks and making that phone call you've been putting off for weeks. If that sounds like you, pop over to Port in the Storm on Facebook and we'll come up with what you need to make that soft play actually happen. (music) Next week, we're talking to one of our incredible community members, Stephanie Ward. Steph wants to tell you that whoever you are and whatever you want to achieve, following the sorceress power type can lead you there. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mel Robinson.